Support for this program comes from listeners like you. To find out more, visit us online at chipbrogdon.com. Who are the elders? This is message number one in a series of teachings from the book of Titus in the New Testament. Titus is only three chapters long, so it's not a very long letter, but lots of spiritual truths and um, very useful to us as we seek to better understand what was life like in the New Testament, in the early Ecclesia. What was life like? What was the body of Christ like? What did they struggle with and what were they concerned for and concerned about? I've often thought that we have the impression or we have been given the the impression that New Testament life, body life in the New Testament, the early ecclesia, that it was heaven on earth and everything was just wonderful and great and pure. But if that were the case, then very much of the New Testament would not have even been written because much of the New Testament was written to try and correct things that were out of line, uh, to bring correction and to bring direction and to bring guidance and to bring sound teaching and to keep people from going too far astray from the simplicity of Christ, from going too far to the left or to the right of the narrow way. And um, I'm thankful that the New Testament, the writings that we have that make up the New Testament, they they do not gloss over these imperfections, but we see how Jesus is building his ecclesia upon the foundation of himself, and he's not using perfect people. He's not using perfect pastors and perfect preachers and perfect apostles. We see imperfection in people, and yet God is using them anyway to be light shining in darkness and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So I think that's important. Otherwise, we will look to the New Testament and look to the believers in the New Testament and put them and put their experience up on a pedestal and say that uh, if only we could go back to the way things were in the New Testament 2,000 years ago, why all of our, our, our problems would be solved and we would really be fulfilling the purpose for the body of Christ in the Ecclesia. I would suggest to you that any attempt to go back and to recapture something of the New Testament experience is actually a step backwards uh, because what we see is the early ecclesia, the foundation being laid for a a body of Christ, um, but certainly not the maturity, not the end result. It's a beginning. It's not the end. Um, you know, so of course, in a sense, if we are progressing down a path that does not have the proper foundation, then certainly we need to go back to the beginning and start all over again. Um, but 
we should have by this point, I would say, as Paul said to the Corinthians, you should by now be teachers. Instead, you need someone to come and teach you again the very basic principles of Christ. Um, so to want to go back to that and believe that would be the solution to our spiritual immaturity is uh, misguided. Because uh, the, new, the New Testament reveals a spiritually immature church. It reveals the, the birth of the ecclesia, not the adulthood, not the maturity. We see them making strides in that direction. But something happened once Christianity became a religion instead of a relationship. And uh, that the whole, the whole uh, process of growth and spiritual maturity became hijacked by the institutional church. So what we're seeing in the New Testament is not a perfect representation of God's purpose. It is an imperfect beginning, but there is still uh, much more for us to see and to grow and to learn and hopefully even to go beyond where they were in the New Covenant, where they were in the New Testament. Well, we are still in the New Covenant. Do you understand the difference? Um, The the New Testament covers uh, the Gospels, Book of Acts, uh, the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter and John and James, and the Book of Revelation. That is the New Testament, but the New Covenant lives on. The New Covenant is what you and I are living in today. Uh, So in that sense, I'm not saying that uh, we go beyond uh, the Christ-centered faith or the Christ-centered message. If anything, we need to go back and restore those foundations. But we may certainly, uh, if if we really catch a vision of who Christ is and who he is in us, and we have this uh, New Testament to learn from and the experience of these early believers to learn from, uh, there's no reason that we could not spiritually become as mature and, and hopefully certainly even more spiritually mature further along the path than, um, than we see revealed in, in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, as I say, it is a beginning. It's not perfection. And even the apostles were not perfect. And again, what I think that's great. What I love about it is Scripture does not gloss over that fact. It it reveals all the shortcomings of Peter, all the flaws of Paul, and all of them are right there for us to see and to learn from. So um with with we'll, we'll introduce um the book of Titus with these three sections. First introduction, we'll we'll give some background on on Titus so that you can see the relevance uh to this letter that this letter has to us today. We'll talk about qualifications of elders, and of course, we'll also discuss the need for elders. Uh, So we are basically going to make a case, a scriptural case for spiritual leadership. Uh, What is it? Is it needed? Why is it needed? Does it exist? And so I think this will be useful and it will be helpful to us, especially with the hindsight of 2000 years of church history that we can look back on. But let's begin reading. In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, 
and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has, in due time, manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. So let's talk a little bit about who Titus is, actually, This letter was written by Paul to Titus about the same time that Paul wrote 1 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter. So this letter to Titus is written by Paul kind of towards the end, not exactly at the end, but it's one of the last letters that Paul would have written. Um, Now, Titus is mentioned several times in the New Testament. Uh, In Galatians 1.3, We learn about Titus. It says that Titus, being Greek, was not compelled to be circumcised. So we gather from that that Titus was Greek, um, and he was uncircumcised, and meaning um, that he was a non-Jewish Gentile believer in Jesus, who was probably converted in Antioch when Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch. Galatians 1.3 is where Paul mentions Titus. Now, circumcision and uncircumcision, it may not seem like a really big issue with us today, but uh, in those times it was a huge issue, and it spoke right to the very heart of this conflict between Judaism and what would eventually become Christianity. But in these times, it was really a, a conflict between Messianic Jews and Gentile Jews, or Messianic Christians. Um, However you label it, you had some uh, Jewish followers of Jesus who wanted to keep Jesus within Judaism, and they, they acknowledged Jesus as the Savior and as the Messiah, but they insisted that anyone who wanted to be a follower of Jesus also had to Uh, support and keep and obey and follow and uh, adhere to all the laws of Moses and circumcision uh, was like the rite of initiation. And since the Gentiles were not circumcised, this became a huge controversy. And again, the controversy is it's great that you are following Jesus and that you have become saved. Uh, Now that we have, uh, gotten out of ourselves enough to accept the fact that God wants to save you too, it would really make God happy if while you are confessing your faith in Jesus, that you also would just go ahead and be circumcised according to the Jewish tradition. And um, you might as well keep the Ten Commandments as well as the feasts and the holidays and, oh yeah, no pork and... um, so this this whole religious uh, spirit of Judaism was entering in and trying to spoil this uh, sincere and pure faith in Christ. And this was the heart of the controversy. I'm not making it up. It's in the book of Acts. Uh, the letter to the Galatians was written to encourage them not to be led astray by these Jewish believers. And Paul called them false brothers. 
who snuck in unawares. But this was a big controversy, and and Paul's position was that when you believe in Jesus, he accepts you as you are. He does not require you to uh, go back and be circumcised and keep the law of Moses and and, uh, keep all the festivals and feasts and the Sabbath. Does it require that from uh, from Gentiles in order to be saved? And the Jewish believer says, oh, yes, he does. (laughs) And uh, isn't that interesting? Because that that is uh, very similar to the same conflict that we have today. So this conflict is nothing new. Uh, it is, it is, um, it comes in different forms. It's labeled different things, but it's always been a conflict uh, from the very beginning. So in Galatians also, Paul mentions Titus. It says that Titus went up to Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas to meet with the rest of the apostles concerning this question of circumcision. Well, I mean, j- just imagine you know, Titus. Here he is. Um, he he receives the Lord Jesus. He confesses Jesus as Lord. And here comes these uh, the Jews from Jerusalem saying, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. And this created uh, a lot of discord and a lot of controversy. And Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem to to speak to James and the other apostles to to see: Is this what you're going to teach? Is this is is this what faith in Jesus is going to come down to? That you have to become a Jew in order to be saved? And Titus went up to Jerusalem with them. So isn't that interesting? That um, here's someone who's a who's a Greek who's not Jewish, he's uncircumcised, and so he's right here in the heart of the matter, in the heart of the controversy, and and Paul brings him along. It's like, okay, are you going to say that this brother in Christ can't be saved because he's not circumcised, because he's not uh, becoming, he's not converting to Judaism, therefore he can't be saved? Is is that really what you want to teach? Is that really what you want to say? And so they hashed all of that out, and and they came to an agreement that, mm, no, faith in Jesus doesn't require Gentiles to be circumcised. Well, you would think that would settle it, but of course, for the religious uh, people and the, in the religious minds, uh, n- nothing is ever satisfactory except bringing more people into legalistic bondage. And so everywhere Paul went, these Jewish people would follow up behind him and would try to <laughs> contradict him. And so Paul is battling with this in throughout his whole ministry. Titus also delivered the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. We recently finished a study on 2 Corinthians, and that letter was delivered by Titus. Now, some scholars say that Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthians, so that 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians, and we don't know what happened to 2 Corinthians. And they think that Titus delivered the first one, or, the, or that Timothy delivered the first letter, Titus delivered the second letter, and which we don't have anymore, and then Titus delivered the third letter that we do have, which is now 2 Corinthians. So um, it can be confusing if you follow all the scholarly arguments, but the bottom line is we have 1 and 2 Corinthians. Titus delivered the letter that became known as 2 Corinthians, and Paul mentions him again in 2 Corinthians 8.23. He mentions Titus. He says, if anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner 
and fellow worker concerning you. So we see uh, Titus is uh, is traveling with Paul. Paul is sending Titus ahead of him very often, uh, delivering letters and messages when Paul can't go on his own. And um, also in 2 Corinthians, we learn that Paul trusted Titus with the collection of the money for the saints in Jerusalem. So Titus was sent ahead to try and get that organized before Paul got there. So Titus is is just a, an all-around uh, helper, asset, servant, uh, whatever you want to call it. He was a tremendous helper and supporter of Paul, went with him in all of his travels and uh, would make uh, make these deliveries and do these things that Paul needed him to do. And uh, now, when we come to this letter, we're going to we are going to find out in uh, the next verse that we read. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Uh, so Paul left Titus behind in Crete to help with the believers there. Um, so, so Titus is a, is an important, I would call him an unsung hero. He's, he's just there. He's faithful. He's at Paul's side. If Paul tells him to go, he goes. If Paul tells him to stay, he stays. Um, and, and there's just a great, uh, friendship and great relationship there. And, and Titus is just, he's just a, a great, all around faithful, good servant, good servant of the Lord, but certainly uh, very helpful to Paul in his ministry as well. And so Paul left Titus behind. Apparently, Paul visited Crete at one point, and um, well, well, we know that he did visit the island. It's recorded, but at some point, Paul returned to the island with Titus and left Titus behind. And we'll talk about why he left Titus behind here in just a minute. But he he trusted Titus and gave him uh, some some responsibility there to help the ecclesia. Uh, in Titus three twelve, at the end of this letter, he is going to Paul is going to ask Titus to leave Crete and come visit him in Nicopolis, which is in a, a different part of of the Roman Empire, a different part of Greece. And in his final letter, in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul mentions that Titus has gone to Dalmatia, which is uh, further north, I believe. It's where the uh, Croatia and and, um, Bosnia, uh, modern-day geography, it's right uh, right across the water there from Italy. Still in that, um, in, in more of a northerly from where they started out from. But, uh, but so, so here's Titus. Uh, he's, he's mentioned, as I say, several times in scripture. He's a, he's a helper, a supporter. Um, he goes where he is sent and he comes when he is asked and, uh, it doesn't, uh, doesn't create a lot of fanfare and, um, just, just does what, does what everything that is asked of him he does and he is faithful and good in his service to the lord and in his support of paul so that's important that 
we understand a little bit about who it is that Paul is leaving behind and what he is asking him to do. So uh, back to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So this is not one of those long, drawn-out letters um, that's going to go really deep into all kinds of teaching and all kinds of uh, personal stories and and anecdotes, the way, uh, for example, Romans or First or Second Corinthians. This is a short letter to someone that um, is very loved by Paul and is very well-known. They have a good working relationship. So we're, we are fortunate to have the letter to be able to answer some questions. First of all, why did Paul leave Titus in Crete? And the answer is to, to set in order the things that are lacking. Say once again, and you, you don't have to study much of the New Testament. You read the letter to Galatians. Uh, Paul is complaining that they have been bewitched. They're following after another Jesus and another gospel. He's trying to get them back on the straight and narrow path. Certainly, as we have studied first and second Corinthians, you see that they were spirit filled, but carnal and were not growing spiritually. And there was sin in the camp. We look in the book of Acts and we see uh, different controversies that arose and how they solved them or how they attempted to solve them. And here we see that Paul is leaving Titus behind in Crete to set things in order that are lacking. So once again, all of this simply underscores the fact that the New Testament ecclesia was not perfect. And that's okay. We're not perfect and we're not going to be perfect. Even if we do manage to escape from churchianity and, and embrace a Christ-centered faith, we're still not going to be perfect. There's only one who is perfect, that is the Lord Jesus. To the extent that we follow him, to that extent we will be uh, less likely to make stupid mistakes and fall into the flesh and uh, be seduced from the simplicity of Christ. But that's not to say that we are going to be sinless or that we are going to achieve perfection or that if we go back and do it the way they did it in the New Testament, then somehow we are going to achieve heaven on earth. That is not going to be the case either. There's no such, such thing as a perfect fellowship or a perfect person or a perfect people. Apart from the Lord Jesus. So Paul left Titus in Crete to set in order the things that are lacking. And I, I noticed a little play on words here as I was looking at this in the Greek text. 
because it's the same Greek words. And if I were to try and put it into English to pick up on this play on words, it would say something like this. I left you behind to fix what is falling behind. (laughs) I left you behind to fix what is falling behind. So I thought that was interesting. And, uh, but it begs the question, what was falling behind? What was lacking in Crete on that island with those people and, and those believers? What were they coming up short in? What were they falling behind on? Well, we're, we're going to see, um, and as we progress through the letter, exactly what Paul was concerned about, but always bearing in mind that Paul's primary goal, and therefore I believe our goal should be to ensure the spiritual growth and maturity of God's people, to help them to grow in a Christ-centered faith, and to prevent them or protect them or try to warn them from being led astray from the simplicity that is that is in Christ Jesus. The simplicity of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, I am fearful for you that just as Eve was deceived by the devil with, with all of his subtlety, so also you would be corrupted and led astray from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. And I... I think that is such a profound statement. It's also very prophetic because that is exactly what happened once the body of Christ became institutionalized. We forsook the simplicity of Christ. We embraced the complexity of religion. And that's what we have been left with for almost 2,000 years now as a religion about Jesus becomes bigger and better and more important than a relationship with Jesus. A religion about him is not the same as a relationship with him. And that's what Paul was concerned for. And that's what he's always concerned about. Colossians chapter 1, he says, Jesus we preach, warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And uh, even, even Peter um, spoke his agreement that God's purpose is for all to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. That's what Paul says. Peter says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he encourages those who have repented to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So that was Paul's Paul's goal personally as well. He says, I do not count myself as having been made perfect or having already attained, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind and pressing on towards the things that are in front of me, I press on towards the goal for the high call of God in Christ Jesus, to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So really, uh, it, it's about knowing Jesus. It's not about church attendance. It's not about paying your tithes. It's not about going to seminary and becoming a preacher. Uh, it all starts and it all ends with, do you know Jesus? And forgetting everything else, Paul says, I consider everything else dung, refuse, crap, worthless, 
compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what I call a Christ-centered faith. It's not a church-centered faith. It's a Christ-centered faith. So Paul says there are some things that need to be set in order here in Crete, and I'm leaving you behind, Titus, so that you can set these things in order. I, I left you behind to fix what is falling behind. So what's falling behind? Well, what's falling behind is their spiritual growth and maturity in a Christ-centered faith, in a Christ-centered relationship. There's other elements coming in to threaten that, and we'll talk about that in the next half of the chapter. So what was falling behind? Well, they were falling behind the people. And they were running the risk of being led astray from the simplicity of Christ. Well, what is the solution? Paul sees that there's something lacking. He leaves Titus behind to fix what is falling behind. And what is the solution here? Well, Paul says, I I left you there so that you can appoint elders in every city. Appoint elders in every city. Now, the King James Version says ordain elders in every city. And I suppose, uh, um, it, in my mind, ordain, ordination, all of that sounds uh, so religious, so ministerial, Um We're going to see examples, and I've already read one example where it says a bishop must be blameless. You'll see that the King James Version was trying to establish and give credibility to the Church of England. Well, who commissioned the King James Version? Uh, I'll give you a hint. King James, right? (laughs) The King James Version. Uh, So it is uh, his name that's on the version. If you want to see something interesting, you should read the history of the King James Version, how a lot of what they took, um, a lot of the translation they took from the Greek came from Tyndall, William Tyndall, uh, who was even more revolutionary than me. He said um, when one of the Catholic priests told Tyndall, They didn't like him translating the Bible into a language that people could actually understand. They didn't like him translating the Bible into English. And one of the Catholic priests told William Tyndall we would be better off to do because the Pope outlawed it. And so the priest said we would be better to do without God's law than without the Pope's law. What? (laughs) And Tyndall said, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. And if God gives me, spares my life so many years, I will make the boy who drives the plow to know the scriptures better than you. And that's exactly what Tyndall did. Uh, but the, the uh, his work was not received, and he was, uh, he was put to death as a heretic for trying to put the word of God into the, in, out of Greek and into the language of the people out of Latin and and he went past the Latin and went back to the Greek and began to translate it into uh, English. That's long before the King James version. Then the King James once, um, once King James broke away 
from control of the Roman Catholic Church and established the Anglican Church or the Church of England and uh, says that the king or the monarch is the head of the Church of England. Then, of course, he was very interested in having an English translation of the scriptures. And so he appointed a committee of uh, Bible scholars and professors of religion, and they divided up the work amongst uh, many different people. And um, the interesting thing is a lot of the work had already been done by Tyndall, and they had already put him to death uh, many years before. But now they used a lot of his material they used in the King James Version. But but King James, <laughs> he had a few uh, caveats and a few instructions. And one of the things that he instructed the translators is where Tyndall would translate ecclesia as congregation or assembly. The king said, whenever you see that word ecclesia, you need to make that church. Now, why would he say that? Well, because he's trying to use scripture to justify the existence of the Church of England. And that's why you have church in the Bible instead of ecclesia or assembly or congregation. The focus was always, from Tyndall's point of view, it, it was anti-institutional. It was always focusing on the people, not on the structure. And so there's lots of... Uh, institutional overtones in the King James Version, and, and hopefully with that brief uh, historical sketch, you understand the motivation. If you want to understand why something is written the way it is, then look at who's writing it and what their motivation is. King James, who was sponsoring this King James Version, is trying to establish his credentials as head of the Church of England and make his his church... Um, appear to be endorsed by scripture. And so you have words like church, ordain, bishop. And so it's all very convenient, uh, but we have to dig past all of that ministerial, all of that religious jargon and terminology and get to the original of what these things mean if we want to understand how they applied in the time that they were written can't take them out of context and, and put them, insert them into the religious situation in 1611 and say this is what scripture was talking about. And we certainly can't take it and apply it to uh, the 21st century body of Christ and imagine that our system of organization, our religious system that is corrupt and defiled, is somehow um, approved of in Scripture. That when Jesus says, I will build my church, quote-unquote, that somehow he meant the Baptist church and the Methodist church and the uh, Roman Catholic church and the Anglican church and the Pentecostal church and all these tens of thousands and millions of different churches, and that was the church that Jesus said he would build. He would build. Um, so we, we have to get past all of that and get down to really what things mean and how they were meant at the time that they were written. So Paul's solution, he says, to appoint elders in every city. King James says ordain, but the original simply means to set or to put, and it can also mean to declare or show to be. To declare or show to be. I really believe 
that it's more about discovering than it is about deciding. And I think if we were to take the time and trace it out in the book of Acts, I think we'll see that it was more about confirming the ones that the Holy Spirit had already uh, ordained, had already chosen, than it was about, okay, um, let's appoint someone to be in charge here. Who wants to be in charge? Let's have a, a show of hands and then let's put it to a vote. Or let's see who's the smartest. Or let's see who has the, the most uh, theological instruction. Who's ordained here? Who And even that word ordained today, it means that you've got some kind of a ministerial credential, that some body of human beings has given you permission to do uh, ministry or religious services. Um, I just don't see that that was part of what we're talking about here. So I think that is all of that has been twisted. It has been um, misconfigured and misrepresented. So the original simply means to set or to put, to declare, to show, to be, to point them out. And uh, we look through the book of Acts. I think, I think that will support that. And I don't think since Titus was very familiar with this and he traveled around with Paul, he said, well, why didn't Paul just spell out what he, what he meant? Well, he didn't need to because Titus has been his faithful companion, remember? And he's traveled around with Paul, and he sees how Paul and Barnabas interact with the believers. They say, oh, the Holy Spirit is moving upon this person. We're, we're, we are ordaining them, <laughs> King James says. We are declaring them or showing them to be or setting them or putting them, putting them out there, pointing them out as overseers, elders. So I really don't think it's their decision as much as it is their discovery. It's the Holy Spirit's decision. And then they simply declare or show to be the ones whom God has already chosen to be. Um, and I think that was understood. It's not understood by us. I think it was certainly understood by Paul and by Titus. So then the question becomes, well, what is an elder? And um, we simply go to the original Greek word for elder, which is presbyteros. A presber is an old man. In the Greek language, presber is old man. <laughs> right? Well, that doesn't sound very ministerial and very religious and spiritual, so we have to dress that up a little bit in our modern religious understanding of things, but um, it's very simple. A presber is an old man. So the presbyteros, it meant elderly, older, senior, aged. That's what elder means. And actually, that's what elder means in English. If you take off your uh, your religious eyeglasses and just look at the word, elder means older. Respect your elders who, who are my elders? Well, my elders are those who are older than me. And so if we're going to use this in a spiritual context, it means my elders are my olders in the Lord. Elder, older. They're more senior than me. They've been walking with Jesus longer. In other words, they are more spiritually mature than the rest of the people who have not been walking with Jesus that for that long of a period of time. 
You see, in a family, you have some that are old and some that are young. And that, that is how I believe we should be looking at the ecclesia. We should look at the ecclesia not as a organization. We should look at it as a family. And in a family, you have olders and you have youngers. So Paul is, is basically saying to set these things in order, go around and, and notice and point out and, and set apart in front of everyone and show them who the elders are. Who are the ones who are spiritually mature? Because you see, it may not necessarily follow that just because you are older in years, you are spiritually more mature. Uh, Timothy, another of Paul's faithful companions that he left in Ephesus. I think it was Ephesus that Timothy was in. Is that right? Could be. Yeah. First Timothy 1, 3, I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So Timothy was in Ephesus doing the same thing that Titus was doing in Crete. And Timothy was a young man. He was not an old man. So Paul says, don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example to the others. So here is someone who is considered to be an elder, and yet he's a young person. So older in physical years does not necessarily mean you are older in the Lord. But it is a question of spiritual maturity. So then the question is, what is the bishop? What is, the, in verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless? Well, Paul is using these terms interchangeably. He says, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And he begins to describe them, and he says, for a bishop must be, and then he gives the qualifications here. So, um, again, bishop is one of those King James Version words used to justify a religious and a ministerial system that was created by man for man in 1611 as a response to the Roman Catholic system that had already been created. So we have to go farther back than all of that to get to the real heart of it. And the Greek word is episkopos, episkopos, which means overseer, guardian, steward, or superintendent. In other words, it is someone who watches over things done by others to make sure they are done rightly. So yes, we're, we are talking about spiritual leadership, but we're not talking about lording over everybody else. Spiritual leadership is, is loving others and serving them. It's not lording over them and abusing them. So right away, we make a distinction between spiritual leadership in Scripture and the religious leadership that we saw in Judaism revealed in Scripture, and the religious leadership that we see today revealed in Churchianity, which claims to be the original faith of the New Testament. And actually, it is a counterfeit and a distortion for many reasons, but, but uh, chiefly among them, the fact that they have misunderstood and misappropriated spiritual leadership. Uh, 
instead of being guardians and overseers to ensure that people are growing spiritually in a Christ-centered faith, uh, these religious leaders have hijacked a Christ-centered faith, turned it into a church-centered faith, and they've done it to support their own career, to support their own ministries as blind leaders of the blind, establishing and building things that God never told them to establish, making themselves to be the spiritual head of the assembly, requiring or asking and and expecting that people are going to refer to them as father or holy father. When Jesus says, call no man on earth your father, or expecting to be called pastor this or pastor that, when scripture says that the Lord is my pastor, the Lord is my shepherd. So all of these things, basically what I'm telling you is that Christianity is just a, a another counterfeit religion, just as Judaism is a counterfeit religion, in terms of doesn't represent the heart and mind of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. These are the very things that Paul saw, foresaw, foretold, and that Jesus foretold in his parables that there's going to be defilement. There's going to be uh, a mixture of sheep and goats and and, uh, wheat and tares. And the pure lump would be leavened. And this is exactly what has happened. So King James uses uses the word bishop, which which infers and tends to justify and support Uh, this great institutional Church of England or the great institutional Roman Catholic Church. But the Greek word is very simple. It just means someone who watches over, guards, a steward, a superintendent, someone who watches over to make sure that things are done the way they are supposed to be done. And uh, for our purposes, the way things are supposed to be done is people are supposed to be giving Jesus the preeminence. Relationship with him, not a religion about him. In fact, one of the great tasks and one of the great responsibilities of elders and overseers is to prevent people from being distracted and led astray from the simplicity of Christ by these angels of light, by these religious spirits coming in and spoiling the purity of their faith. That's part of what they were supposed to be doing is watching over to make sure that these wolves in sheep's clothing did not enter in and destroy the flock. Presbyteros refers to spiritual maturity, while Episcopus refers to spiritual service. And that's why Paul uses these words interchangeably. Both refer to the same type of person, and both are needed for that person to be in that place of guardianship, for that place of stewardship. So you can be older without necessarily taking responsibility for the spiritual growth of others, but you cannot take responsibility for their growth unless you are older. You can't lead people to a place you have never been. So you have to have some spiritual maturity in Christ to be able to lead people into spiritual maturity in Christ. And that's why Paul says, don't, don't make someone, told Timothy, don't make someone an elder who isn't really older 
Don't make them an elder just because they're smart or they're charismatic or they seem to have spiritual gifts. You can have all of those things and still not be spiritually mature. So presbyteros refers to spiritual maturity, eldership, and episcopos refers to spiritual service, overseeing, guarding. Paul says we have a stewardship, and so that refers to his episcopos. So spiritual maturity combined with spiritual service and spiritual responsibility, all of these is what qualifies someone as an elder in the church, in the ecclesia that Jesus is building. We can't judge the heart. That's true. But we can see and we can judge the behavior. We can know the fruit. And we can judge the tree by the fruit that it produces. And so Paul is very specific about the type of person he wants in these positions of spiritual leadership. It's not based on personal politics. It's not based on money, who gives the biggest donation. It's not based on education, who went to the right schools. It's not based on degrees in theology or hermeneutics or whatever it is that they study in seminary these days. But things that were very practical. Someone who's blameless, husband of one wife, faithful children. A steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. I mean, you've, you've got to have the right person in this, in this position of responsibility. What would happen if you put someone that was not qualified in a position of spiritual leadership, watching over other people to make sure that they are not led astray from the simplicity of Christ, and yet they are led astray from the simplicity of Christ, what's going to happen? You're going to have a situation where it's the blind leading the blind, and oh, wait, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? That's exactly what we have today. And so Paul was very specific. Scripture is very specific about the type of person who is to be an overseer. But just to keep it simple, it's someone who is spiritually mature in Jesus. They have the fruit to match. And they're able and willing and faithful in their stewardship to take responsibility, not to lord over people, but to love them. You see the difference. If you're at all confused, please, please email me and I will try to, to help you to see if you can't see the difference between what we have in the religious system today and what scripture intended these elders, these overseers to be. One of the interesting things here, and this is going to require some more study, I think, it's very interesting that the word pastors the idea of a pastor is only used one time in the New Testament. And it's never mentioned at all in any of these qualifications here given to Titus or to, given to Timothy. Pastor is only mentioned once, one time in the New Testament. 
In the Old Testament, it's mentioned, I think, 13 times. And all but one or two of those times, it's in a derogatory sense, such as the pastors have abused the sheep. It's used in a positive sense when it refers to the Lord is my pastor or my shepherd. That's what the word means, a pastor slash shepherd. And we may need to look at it, but what I'm saying is that there is nothing in Scripture that says that a pastor is supposed to be in a position of spiritual authority, that he is the spiritual head of a church or a group. Pastors are linked together with teachers. And it's Ephesians 4.11 is the only time a pastor is ever mentioned in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? And there's it doesn't list any qualifications for pastors. doesn't list any qualifications for evangelists. And you can have true and false apostles, true and false evangelists, true and false pastors, and true and false teachers, and true and false prophets. But perhaps there are no qualifications because their qualifications, their job responsibilities are tied up within the actual name. A pastor means shepherd, someone who feeds. A teacher is someone who teaches. An evangelist is someone who evangelizes, spreads the the gospel. A prophet is someone who speaks forth words from God. An apostle is one who is sent from God. But I just find it interesting, and I think it's something we should look at. The idea of a pastor is only mentioned one time in the New Testament. In Ephesians 4.11, it's never mentioned at all (laughs) anywhere else. It's not mentioned in Titus. It's not mentioned in Timothy. So is it possible that you could have someone who is spiritually mature, an elder, and also someone who is an overseer, guardian, steward, or superintendent watching over what other people are doing to make sure that they are done rightly. And maybe the pastor, maybe there were several pastors and they needed watching over as well to to keep them in line. And wouldn't that be marvelous if we we had more of that today? It it might help uh, curb some of the abuse but, you know, if, if you've got, um, <laughs> if the ones who are supposed to be watching and keeping an eye on the other ones, if they are corrupt, then, you know, it's it really doesn't do any good. So I'm not trying to figure out how to repair and to fix a system that is broken that Jesus never called us to build in the first place. But I am interested in going back to what Scripture says. So we can understand what these things meant and how they were understood at the time that they were written. And so I I just point out as a footnote and for something for us to look at again, (laughs) pastors are never even mentioned here in this discussion about qualifications. So maybe it's a it's a completely different thing. I don't know. Well, it's got to be it's got to be a different thing. If it's a different word and it's never even mentioned here in Titus or in Timothy, 
when it's talking about. See, he didn't say go around and appoint pastors and shepherds and teachers. For one thing, the Holy Spirit does that, does that. And I think it's more of a function than it is a position of, uh, of leadership. It's just something interesting that I think we should make a note of and, and perhaps come back and study uh, more, more closely. But for all the people, who claim that there is church government and all kinds of organization in the New Testament, they want to defend their system with Scripture, how do you justify the fact that pastor is only mentioned once in the New Testament and is never mentioned at all in any of these qualifications? Paul didn't say, I want you to appoint pastors in every city or pastors in every church group and pastors in every fellowship and every house church. He says, I want you to appoint point out who are the spiritually mature people in this city? Who are the Jesus-focused, Christ-centered, spiritually mature people who have walked with Jesus long enough that something of his life and his presence and his love and his light is manifest in them? Those are the ones that you need to point out to people, and those are the ones who have a responsibility to watch out and help and serve and love, but to ensure the continuity of a Christ-centered faith and to make sure that these religious idiots don't get in and spoil the whole thing. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing, but let's keep reading in uh, verse 10, and you'll see why I say religious idiots. For there are many insubordinate, Paul says, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So now he's referring to the Jews, these religious Messianic Jews. They're Messianic Jews. They believe in Jesus. They believe they're, they're, are they Jewish or are they Christian? No, they're Messianic Jews because they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But these are the ones giving Paul all the problems especially those of the circumcision. See, it wasn't it wasn't the it was not the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. They stayed in Jerusalem. They weren't trying to go out to the Gentiles. They didn't believe God cared about the Gentiles. They only believed that God wanted to save the Jews anyway. So they rejected Jesus. They wouldn't be going around to the Gentiles trying to convert the Gentiles. The Jewish people that were giving Paul all the problems in the book of Acts, all the problems, all the letters that he's writing, it's not the Jews in Jerusalem that rejected Jesus. That's a, that's a different issue. These Jews were the ones going around saying, yes, we are believers in Jesus just like you, but Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And if you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. They were trying to bring Believers in Jesus into bondage to a legalistic Judaism. In other words, trying to take the new wine and pour it into old wineskins. They never got free from that old religious legalistic bondage to the law of Moses. So what they did is they took Jesus and they tried to make him fit into their existing religious mindset. And then they wanted to go out and and they, they took uh, they took the good news of Jesus and believed 
that the instruction to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that once they once they believed, that meant that God actually cared about the rest of the world and not just about Israel. They said, okay, well, we will go and we will preach Jesus to the Gentiles. But they tried to incorporate these Gentile believers into Judaism, and that's where they made the fatal mistake. And that's what Paul has been resisting the whole time. There are many insubordinate idol talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, he says in verse 10. Verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled with what? Defiled with religion. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. And why do I say religion? Verse 16, they profess to know God. See, the world doesn't profess anything. And he's not talking about the Jews in Jerusalem who rejected Jesus. He's talking about the ones who profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. This is the leaven that we come in and destroy the New Testament ecclesia. We need to view the ecclesia not as a corporation, not as a business entity, not as a type of church government, but we need to view it as a family. Ephesians 3.15, Paul discusses the family of God, the family in heaven and earth, so this is, the, this is the spiritual body of Christ. The house of God is the household of God. It's the family of God. It's not the building that we call the house of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in all of your house. It's not talking about the place you live. It's talking about your family. But we talk about the house of God as a building scripture. When it says house of God, it's referring to a family. So if we view the body of Christ, the ecclesia, as a family, then it's very clear that in God's family, the olders are supposed to watch out for the youngers. That's how you need to see it. In a a family, the older brother and sister watches out for the younger brother and sister. So depending on how long you have walked with God, you may be an elder compared to someone else. And compared to others, you may be younger. But we're all supposed to encourage one another, lift up one another, point one another to Jesus, watch out for each other, and of course love and share and help one another. Because in God's family, the olders watch out for the youngers. So we we listen, we don't need self-serving religious leaders to organize and legalize our faith. But what we do need is Christ-centered spiritual leadership to help us grow. We've had enough of self-serving religious leaders. We don't need any more organization. We don't need more legalistic, ritualistic traditions of men. But what we do need 
is Christ-centered older people in the Lord who are going to help us to grow, who who will encourage us in a Christ-centered faith and help us along the path of spiritual maturity and who don't need a ministry platform and a building someplace to make that happen because it's about relationship. It's not about religion. It's not about building an institution. It's about building people. The challenge is the same today as it was then. Religion contaminates everything it touches. It contaminated and destroyed the early ecclesia. And all that's left then and all that's left now is a remnant, a remnant of Christ-centered people who repudiate religion and embrace the cross and the relationship of a Christ-centered faith. In Paul's day, the big threat was Judaism. And in our day, it's churchianity. Churchianity has basically replaced Judaism as the greatest threat to a Christ-centered faith. Now, Paul said these religious people talk, teach, and prophesy. That is, they claim to speak for God. Talking, teaching, prophesying. Says that they profess that they know God. Oh, we know God in a deep way. And they still profess that today. Uh, Many Messianic Jewish believers, they speak a completely different language than you and me do. You and I do. They think they know God in a special way. They think they understand the Old Testament in ways that you and I don't understand and and that we can't understand because we're not Jewish, you see. And all of this is just another expression of religious legalism trying to distract us from the simplicity of Christ. And Paul says they do it in a way that subverts whole households whose mouths must be stopped because they, they subvert, they overthrow entire households teaching things which they ought not and uh, leading them down a path of legalism, legalism even while professing to know God. And that's, that's the attraction of it. That is the seduction of it. That is why Satan comes as an angel of light as a minister of righteousness. I mean, it's so clear that for for someone not to be able to see this, they have to be spiritually blinded to it. It's so clear. It's right there in Scripture, and we see it happening today as well. The danger is not defilement from the world. It's not the world that we have to worry about. We can be a light to the world, a light shining in darkness, ambassadors for Christ. We have nothing to fear out there. The danger is not coming from the outside. It's coming from the inside. It's coming from that religious spirit. And many of us are still struggling to overcome that religious spirit because we picked it up in the institutional church. And we're still trying to overcome it. Well, I I trust most people here are trying to overcome it. Some may not be. And all they want to do is condemn anyway. But most people who have been awakened, who've had their eyes open, they see the difference between a Christ-centered faith and a church-centered faith. One is based on relationship. One is based on religion. And that is the great defilement. That, that is the leaven 
that enters in and, and makes that pure lump of Christ in his body. It introduces impurity. It spoils. It distracts. And it leads us astray from the simplicity of Christ. Well, I would say the the need for elders today is as great, if not greater, as it was then. Spiritually mature, spiritually responsible people. That's what an elder and an overseer means. Spiritually mature is the elder. Spiritually responsible is the overseer. And, And so these words are used interchangeably in Scripture. Who and what are they? Spiritually mature, spiritually responsible people. They must watch over and they must sound the alarm, just as I am trying to sound the alarm and have been sounding the alarm for a few decades now. This very system of religion is the is the is the end result of what was already beginning to happen there during the time of Paul. And um, it, it's it's very strong. God permits it, God allows it, and eventually he's going to judge it, but he calls his people to come out of it, not to tolerate it, not to put up with it, not to go along to get along, but come out of her, my people, says the Lord, because there is judgment coming upon that system, and it's coming upon anyone who is tied to that system. So spiritually mature, spiritually responsible people who love God and love God's people have a responsibility to see this, to be aware, to make other people people aware of it, and to sound the alarm, to point people to Jesus. Help them to escape from Babylon and to get Babylon out of them. So the modern concept of church, what we've been talking about, the religious system, and the spiritual abuse per perpetuated by people in positions of power in the church, has distorted the original good purpose for spiritual leadership. Elders and overseers in the early ecclesia were there to help, not to hinder, to serve, not to be served, to love, not to lord over. In fact, all true elders and overseers responsible for preserving a Christ-centered faith today must I believe, cry out and sharply rebuke the way religious leaders have subverted whole households and even have subverted whole nations with their hypocrisy, fables, and traditions of men. Paul's concern is for the believers to grow up spiritually in a Christ-centered faith based on relationship, not religion. And if we are spiritually mature enough to share that concern, then we also have a spiritual responsibility to help people escape from churchianity and help them to learn how to walk with Jesus in simplicity and in truth. If you'd like to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at chipbrogdon.com.